the Christmas Injunction. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally. We've got everything you missed over the break, including the emergency declaration just earlier this week. We'll get into the encampment clearing, shelters, and what it might mean for our elected officials and our agencies going forward. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we are Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 247. We've had a long-needed Christmas break. We intended to come back refreshed and rejuvenated, but I was doing some babysitting and Mac has kids and we are both, you'll probably be able to hear it in our voice, just a little bit sick and not quite the refreshed selves we were hoping to be. Yeah, not to mention that it just feels like two months worth of news has happened in this holiday break. Every time something happened, I was like, Troy, maybe we should think about coming back a bit sooner because it's just, but it just kept going and kept going and kept going. And there's no right or wrong time, except for the time we originally planned to come back, which is the week that council returned to work officially as of this week. And so here we are. Well, and council did return with quite a roar, scheduling an emergency meeting uh, for this Monday to debate a housing and homelessness emergency that Mayor Sohi was attempting to declare. So this is a follow-on from all of the encampment closures and concern that people have had about that whole process through December and into January. And we'll talk about that a little bit more later. But the mayor said, as the first order of business, we come back from the holiday break, we're going to debate this idea of an emergency. He tried to essentially indicate that the situation has changed and that this sort of a declaration is warranted and needed in order to bring people together to move this along. The call for this special meeting, I think, was pretty quickly both praised by people who wanted to see council do something. It Council had been pretty quiet about all of the encampment stuff. So those people were quick, I think, to praise it. And then also roundly criticized by other people, including the provincial government, who called it performative and a little bit of a stunt, a political stunt. and like Definitely a pot calling the kettle black situation from the UCP with uh, performative political stunts. Uh, I'm thinking of, you know, perhaps the Alberta Sovereignty Act. No doubt. And yet, Troy, the crazy thing is I found myself on the side of the UCP when I first heard about this. I, too, thought, what possible action could come from this declaration about something that we already know is a crisis and we've been discussing as a crisis in this city and every other major city across Canada and probably North America for quite some time now. So that was an uncomfortable place to be. Well, and I bet you were glad that we didn't record on Tuesday and have you lambasting council because indeed something did come out of this emergency declaration. That's right. So the meeting happened on Monday. It got postponed the final decision until Tuesday. There was about 100 people at City Hall. There was quite a bit of agitation and passion and interest from people. And they deferred the decision, as this council typically does, until the Tuesday. But then they did vote. And it was a 9-4 to four vote in favor of Mayor Sohi's motion. So this is to declare a housing and houselessness emergency, as well as three other motions that were passed, all unanimously, the rest of them, to identify immediate actions to alleviate the crisis, to meet with the provincial, federal, and indigenous representatives, to create a task force with $3.5 million in city funding. So those motions all passed at the same time. And for the councillors who were on the fence about whether or not they should vote in favor of this declaration, it was those other three motions that I think provided them with some comfort that there might be some action. It wasn't just that we got this declaration because just this later this week, the province announced 
I think four and a half million dollars for additional support for encampment clearing. And they've set up this new triage center in conjunction with the Hope Mission to try and connect people who don't want to go into the shelters with other, you know, housing supports and things like that, which was shocking to me, Troy, that anything at all, anything (laughs) came of this. The fact that they met with uh, provincial representatives earlier in the week and then that we got this provincial announcement after the fact was a big surprise to me. This isn't to say this is problem solved. We've done it. But like you said, when the UCP was decrying this as performative, uh, when the minister responsible was saying, nah, I'm not even going to meet with the mayor. Um, He can pound sand. Yeah. That was not an encouraging provincial response from the people who are in charge of this file. So that there was any action was surprising. I think, though, that many will agree that the actions that we got aren't quite a solution to this problem, nor was the request a solution to this problem. So in the meeting for the houseless and homelessness emergency that Mayor Sowie was seeking to declare, you know, at best, if council approved this, which they did, it was another task force. And the task force was funded with $3.5 million. We've had task forces for the better part of four decades. And none of them have quite solved housing and homelessness yet. The most recent one, End Poverty Edmonton, is on the wind down. It's not long for uh, this municipal world. $3.5 million doesn't even begin to solve this type of problem. Was I excited during the meeting? No. The only thing that was exciting to me is, okay, there's an emergency declaration. If you can get the province and the feds and the city all in one room, maybe someone can just dole out some money and this can get solved. That's not quite like to happen, though. No, probably not. The three and a half million is city funding, just to be clear. That comes from community safety and well-being funds that were held in reserve, where council decided that money would come from. The four and a half that I mentioned, I should say, is from the province is an estimate. Jason Nixon has said that the province has added $13 million to the existing provincial budget for emergency shelters. And the city basically expects about $4.5 million of that to go to it to help with encampment cleanup, transporting people to shelters, that sort of thing. And this new facility or this new triage reception center that the province has established Uh, is also being supported by the city. The city is providing transportation to and from this facility as part of its contribution to that. So that sounded like a pretty quick turnaround. And there was a meeting that did happen, although I think it was with the Provincial uh, Safety Cabinet Board, which is, you know, isn't that the one with Chief McVie and some provincial folks and our our two favorite councillors, Troy? No, indeed it is not. That is a separate. The cabinet is different from the Community and Public Safety Task Force, the task force on which Tim Cartmel and Sarah Hamilton sit. This is very much, you know, you go on the street and there's the cup and balls game and you're trying to find where's the responsibility lie. We are just spinning up infinite committees, hoping that no one can blame any particular committee for failing to actually accomplish their goals. There you go. So, I mean, it's kind of irrelevant who they met with because it wasn't actually what the motion talked about, which is, in a way, you think you're going to have at least the minister responsible for this, maybe even the premier, and then you're going to have some federal people, uh, maybe the MPs for the area, for example, minister involved or responsible for housing in this meeting to get together. And as you pointed out, that's not likely to happen anytime soon, nor are we likely to get any additional federal money at this point. I think the federal government 
has done a lot more than the province and also feels like it has done a lot more with the rapid housing initiative and some of the other things that Edmonton has already been able to access. So it seems unlikely that just because we declare an emergency, we're somehow going to be able to tap into some additional funding. We've been sort of doing a correlation and causation thing because Edmonton declared the emergency. We got this provincial funding and the province took action. But keep in mind, the emergency was declared Tuesday and the province did their press release Wednesday. Yeah. The UCP is many things, but competent and quick is not one of them that I typically attribute. <laughs> uh, I honestly think this was coming no matter what, and I think city declaration really had no effect on the outcome. Our two friends, uh, the task force members, Tim Cartmel and Sarah Hamilton, the two councillors I would say who are most closely aligned with the UCP and who most closely have the ear of leaders within the UCP, they both voted against this emergency. So if this emergency was going to cause provincial effect, I don't know that they'd be on the opposing side of it. Yeah, I think that wasn't a surprise. Also, potentially not a surprise was Councillor Karen Principe, who also voted against. She, as we know, usually tends to vote along the same lines as Councillor Cartmel. But the fourth one was a little bit more surprising to me, which was Councillor Aaron Paquette voted against the emergency. There's two things surprising here because you did miss someone. Jennifer Rice. Jennifer yeah. Rice was in favor. So maybe she thought that being houseless is like being bullied and really wants to get on the right side of the issue. But with Aaron Paquette, he spoke at length about his justification for voting against this. And it was essentially, this is the province's responsibility. If we declare an emergency, people are going to expect us to act like it's an emergency. And if we can't act and can't solve this problem, we're misleading our public, which I hear what he's saying. It sounds like bloviating nonsense to me, uh, and I think he should vote in favor of this. But, you know, of the reasons to vote against, that's one that doesn't say, I want people to remain houseless. Yeah, the other reason to vote against it is you don't actually think the declaration will do anything, which is essentially Councillor Cartmel's justification for voting against it. He said that emergency declarations should be carefully considered, and he said you need to have swift, tangible actions that will result in a definite outcome. And he agrees that essentially there is no such swift actions the city can take on housing. It's really the responsibility of the province and uh, other orders of government in order to do that. So he decided not to uh, support the emergency, even though it sounded like he generally agrees there's a crisis and that something needs to happen. He didn't think that the declaration was the way to get there. He also drew a parallel to the declaration of a climate emergency, which I think is quite a bit different in this case. But, you know, he, he indicated there, too, that what is the result of that? Maybe just that people have been disappointed that we haven't had clear actions as a result of declaring a climate emergency. One councillor that might be responsible for not having clear climate actions may, in fact, be the councillor making that argument as we speak. But I found myself actually agreeing with Tim Cartmel a lot. Uh, not throughout the whole thing, because it'd be quite a meeting if I agreed with Tim Cartmel throughout the whole thing. Sure. But he was making some pretty solid points insofar as what people on the ground in Edmonton see as the emergency is encampments. It is the visible houselessness and the clearing of encampments, you know, police action, the protests, uh, countering police action, that sort of thing is the emergency. Mayor Sohi made the perfectly salient point that housing and homelessness and, you know, the housing crisis, they're intertwined. Uh, if people don't have houses, then they end up in encampments. But I did find myself agreeing that declaring an emergency about we don't have enough housing 
in Edmonton is quite a bit different than we don't have warm spaces for these people to remain safe during this cold snap, which is a much more practical, actionable emergency. What we saw from the UCP the next day was, in fact, what Tim Carmel was talking about, action on the encampment emergency. And it wasn't action in terms of giving housing and creating permanent wraparound supports to everyone has a home, you get a home and you get a home. It was a crackdown on homeless encampments guided and enforced by the police. Which is action, but perhaps not helpful to resolve the crisis or prevent the emergency from continuing. One other thing about the declaration we should mention just before we we move on is uh, I've, I've heard some questions about what does this actually give the city? By declaring an emergency, do they gain new powers? Can they do something different than what they could already do? And the short answer to that is no. This is not a state of local emergency as we declared during the pandemic, which gave the city some additional abilities, although still pretty limited. Municipalities in this province don't really have much ability to do anything beyond what the province allows them to. But this declaration is not even on the same level as a state of local emergency. It is simply a, a declaration. It is, it is really simply a virtue signaling kind of activity, kind of exercise, unless you think it can lead to some of these other actions. And so one of the actions that, as I mentioned, did get voted in favor on was uh, asking the city administration, who has been working with the police on these encampment clearings over the last month or so, to come back by the end of this month with a list of actions that they can take to help alleviate this crisis. And I don't understand why it took clearing encampments in as, as minus 30 and below weather was approaching at Christmas time for that to be a request that council made to its administration. Council returned with this emergency meeting, but over the break, and we're going to get to all the things that happened over the break, council was almost dead silent. And the silence read a lot to people watching closely as complicity, as authorizing and supporting police actions over the break in the face of an injunction that had been filed to prevent the city from evicting people from encampments. That is one of the things that definitely colored this response because this task force, uh, this emergency declaration, it all sounds pretty great. You know, like if we had this six months ago in June, I'd be saying, you know, maybe this will be setting us up for winter. I'm glad to see some positive forward momentum on this file. But as an emergency meeting in the face of inaction, it really felt a lot like sleight of hand. The public was demanding accountability and very specific mechanisms of accountability. I'm thinking specifically, we saw videos of people lined up outside of the Bissell Center waiting to get in, and the city didn't dispatch any warming buses outside there. Councillor Aaron Paquette, in fact, asked Andre Corbald, the city manager, about that. Basically got an answer of, there's no money in the budget for that. And I find it really hard to stomach that the city can afford several staffed crews showing up in full PPE with garbage trucks to move several tons of waste along with EPS staffing. You can't pay a driver to show up and park a bus. That's a bridge too far. To not demand accountability from the administrators in public, and granted, they did have a pretty long in private segment of the meeting, I think that led to a lot of people saying, this is a nothing burger. This is missing the point. And of course, the point had been 
treating encampments humanely, treating the people within encampments as people with human rights and dignity and people deserving of a warm, safe space. This was the argument that the Coalition for Justice and Human Rights had put forth with their lawsuit to prevent the city from clearing encampments, which reached a fever pitch just before we released Jeopardy! And we were both debating, do we do another episode? It was. It all came to a head on December 14th. On December 14th, the police sent out an email to service agencies and basically said, we are going to be clearing up these eight encampments over the next couple of weeks, and we want you to provide support for those people, basically, like a heads up, we're going to do this. And that was surprising to a lot of people, I think, quite rightly. And the Coalition for Justice and Human Rights, as you mentioned, very quickly took action and filed an injunction against the city for the removal of all of those encampments. At the time, it was still pretty warm outside, but we knew that cold weather is bound to come at some point. And, you know, at the very moment there, people were just concerned about how cruel a thing it seemed to be to go and clean up all of these encampments, which have been there for quite a long time, right before Christmas you know, right before the holiday period. And so that was filed on Friday, and we got a very temporary injunction until Monday midday the following week on uh, December 18th. And on December 18th, the court granted an interim injunction until January 11th, which is when this hearing was supposed to take place to decide about the legality of the encampment clearing and the approach that the city and the police were taking. Since then, of course, the encampments were cleared. The court did provide some restrictions or guidelines that the city and the police needed to adhere to, which I think is part of the reasons why the city of Edmonton issued a news release after every single encampment was cleared to say we did it in accordance with what the court said to us. And, you know, and now we are here in January and the, the whole case from the coalition has now been thrown out because a judge determined that they did not have standing to bring the case. I'll recommend our listeners. One of my favorite podcasts is What Roman Mars Can Learn About Con Law. It's by the host of 99% Invisible. And he talks to a constitutional professor and, you know, ostensibly guided by Trump, learns what they can learn about constitutional law. Their explanations about standing in particular as a element of deciding a case has been very helpful and guiding when the judge said that the CJHR, the Coalition for Justice and Human Rights, didn't have standing. The judge was not ruling on the content of the case. No actual arguments or evidence had been presented whether, you know, this was in violation of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, whether the city could actually do this. The judge simply ruled that no, you as a party, the Coalition for Justice and Human Rights, don't have the legal bearing to bring this case forward. I will not hear your arguments because you are not sufficiently impacted. If someone with sufficient standing did bring a lawsuit like this forward, it still could move forward and it still could be ruled that these clearings are not within the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And so in some ways, the coalition has achieved some goals because like you said, the city behaved noticeably different than in previous encampment clearings during this process. There were very frequent and expressive and specific communications about all of their actions along the way. The city did in fact change their encampment clearing process to more accurately check for shelter space being available before beginning encampment clearing. So this lawsuit has caused material change. The change it wanted, absolutely not. But it has done something. Yeah, I'm obviously not a lawyer, but the justice said that the coalition bears none of the, quote, hallmarks of a party with a real stake or genuine interest in the outcome. 
end quote. The coalition's lawyer, Avnish Nanda, has said, well, I look at what's happened, as you point out, like it's already, the effort has already influenced the way the city handles its encampment removals. And, you know, it seems like they do have a genuine interest in the outcome here. And in fact, have been able to influence the outcome here. So that's interesting and disappointing. We did get a couple of bits of information that came forward, however, about this lawsuit, things that the city or others had filed that I thought were particularly interesting. And I guess we should also just very quickly say that perhaps one of the reasons why council was quiet over that holiday break, as you pointed out, is because this lawsuit is ongoing. And, you know, there is a concern about what they say on the record when they're facing legal action, especially when they haven't had an opportunity to all come together and talk about, you know, what the response is going to be or what they can and cannot say on and off the record, right? They didn't have any of that guidance. So that could be a reason why they were a little bit quiet. But the city did have to file some things. And one of the things that they filed that I thought was particularly interesting was essentially an agreement with the province that there is enough shelter spaces for folks and that the shelters were not at capacity. And I thought that was interesting because it, I think, probably made council feel like they're in a really difficult position, being the body that has been consistently saying, we don't have enough shelter space. You know, the province promised us this number of shelter spaces for the winter. They're not all operational yet. Where are all the shelter spaces? And yet then you have your your one and only employee in a court basically saying, no, no, we, we have enough shelter space. They're not at capacity. We can get into shelters a little bit more, but I think that was one of the interesting things that came out of that lawsuit process. And then the other was that Homer Trust CEO, Susan McGee, so Homer Trust is the organization that's been tasked with sort of managing Edmonton's response to homelessness. They do the homeless count, for example, and other things. She filed an affidavit suggesting that you know, if the injunction were granted, it might normalize encampments and that could erode other efforts that are underway to improve safety and and, um, improve the impact on the community. When we're debating issues like housing and homelessness, it seems like being able to agree on a base series of facts would be helpful. And yet, with the UCP and government, as has been the case many times before, we are not quite able to agree on these facts. Homeward Trust had published some numbers. The Edmonton Journal had done phone calls and discussions with each shelter operator to come up with a number of shelter spaces available. And the provincial minister, Jason Nixon, had been frequently on Twitter saying, all of you are wrong. There's this many, around 1,700 shelter spaces. All of these numbers were different on the same day. And of course, complementing these numbers were videos from people on the ground of dozens of people queued outside of shelter spaces and warming locations, unable to get inside because there was not enough space. Mac, it's really hard for me to really fully understand the issue when a simple fact of how many shelter spaces are open does not seem to be answered by any party involved. It's a very perplexing thing. Taproot did a a whole story about shelters and trying to understand what the numbers are and what it means. And it seems to me there's two main issues at play here. One is, what are the numbers? And the other is, why do we just treat them as numbers? Right? That's the other big problem here. So the province has said funding for 1,700 shelter spaces has flowed to shelter operators. There's somewhere between 1,400 and 1,700 spaces currently in operation. The post media account that you mentioned was 1,429. The other thing that happened in the middle of all of this is that it used to be Homeward Trust 
that maintained the list of shelter spaces, the count on their website, and they were asked by the province to take it down. And then we had no count for several days until the province put up its own number. So that's also a bit of a concern. Notably, significantly less granularity and specificity in the provincial number, almost as if it was designed (sighs) to obfuscate the actual Well, of course, right? So, I mean, the number thing is really concerning, and you're right. Getting a simple answer to that, that should be something we can all agree on. A space is a space is a space, essentially. I know there's different rules and different shelters and things like that, but we know how much funding should go here and, and what that should turn into. The other, to me, more important thing is that too much of this conversation over the last month really devolved into a numbers game. The encampments, and we saw how people were treated in the cleanup of those encampments, that their belongings were just taken away, that it was cold and we don't want those folks sleeping outside in the first place. All of that turned into, well, how many spaces are there? Rather than why is that person forced to sleep outside or why do they choose to sleep outside? What is it about the shelter spaces that we apparently have available that are not appealing? And I think that's a part of the story that's gotten a lot less attention, but is no less important here that people choose to avoid shelters for all kinds of reasons, because they can't keep personal belongings, because it's cold and inhumane on concrete floors, because they're loud, because there's violence and assaults and other things that happen inside of those those spaces. And the city, as you know, council previously, I think we talked about this, they had proposed some minimum standards for shelters. They recognized that this was an issue and they wanted to do something about this, but they don't have the legal authority to actually do anything about it, right? It's all provincial to actually take those standards and do something with them. And that's what Councillor Knack has said, essentially, that he said, we thought that by creating some new standards, they'd have a good place to start. But of course, council can't do anything to make the province put those things into practice. So I think that's another part of this story that is really concerning and that we probably need to spend some more time and attention on is not just do we have enough spaces, but for the spaces we do have, are they actually doing something to alleviate the problem? It's helpful to think about just the reality of someone who is houseless and in an encampment. And let's say you've got a tent and you've got three sleeping bags to keep yourself warm in the winter. And, you know, you've got some pots and pans and maybe a bike and a couple other things in your cart beside your tent. That's all you've got as a person. And now you need to go to a shelter because it's minus 30 and you're cold. Going to the shelter, some of them are open 24-7 with extreme caveats. And that's atypical. Most shelters aren't open 24-7 most of the time. So you want to stay warm for the evening. That involves no storage for your stuff. So your three sleeping bags that you use to keep warm through the days that aren't minus 30, the days that are just minus 10, minus 12, you lose them. To stay warm for one night, you may not have any of your warm clothes, any of your sleeping bags, any of your other items. Again, that's how you get frostbite. That's how you get amputations. That's how you get people falling further and further into poverty. The shelter that they're staying warm for a night in is not a hotel room. It is a mat on a concrete floor a foot and a half from the other person who just lost everything and is angry about it. This is a recipe for disaster, and I don't know from my privileged state if I would want to go there, right? Do I risk the shelter gambling everything and losing all I've built up? Or do I say, you know, frostbite sucks, but a little bit of frostbite is better than getting stabbed. These are the calculations that 
people might be making. And this is the sort of dehumanization and the numbersifying that we're talking about. When the minister says there are 1,700 shelter spaces available, so tear down those encampments, what he's really saying is these people are numbers to us and the numbers are not at 100%, therefore do it no matter what. And some of the videos we saw from especially the Roland Road uh, encampment removal, it was minus 25, minus 30 with wind chill, it's minus 40. And you had people without mitts being shoved face first into the snow and arrested. Mac, I shoveled on those days and I was cold with my jacket and I took off my mitts to open my garage. And within 30 seconds, my hands hurt. I can't imagine being handcuffed on the ground, unable to move, unable to do anything. And any struggling, any saying I'm cold is treated as resisted arrest and met with brutality. Yeah. This is the sort of inhumane actions that council wasn't responding to and still hasn't quite responded to. I, th I hear all of that and I think you're right and I agree and it's really disheartening and you know you see those photos in the video and you really like what do you do right people just don't know what to do about that and so they're looking to their leaders to take some kind of action the other side of this of course is the position the police and the city and specifically fire rescue services have which is that encampments are also unsafe they lead to crime potentially, and the police have been quick to show off the many weapons and swords and other things that they've recovered from encampments. But the fire department has talked about how many fires take place in encampments. There's obviously an inability to ensure sanitation and prevent disease spread and things like that in encampments. And so it's not a simple, oh my God, we have to do something about the encampments in a more humane way. I can understand the position of the people who are charged with you know, keeping people safe, that they say, well, how can we allow those things to exist when they don't allow us to keep people safe? And in fact, they found a body in one of the encampments um, that they cleaned up. And there have been lots of reports over the last uh, year about fires and encampments and things like that. So, you know, as the encampment clearings were happening, I found myself in this really uncomfortable position where I agree that it could have been done in a much more humane way and it did not need to happen in such a rush right before Christmas. It didn't seem like there was any logic or, or rhyme or reason to that. It's just they decided all of a sudden they were going to clean up these encampments. But on the other hand, it's like, should we allow encampments to continue? Probably not in the way that we have been. You know, if you sanction a, an encampment, you're talking about something different, but it does provide the opportunity for you to offer services and, and sanitation and other things on site. Security, again, doesn't solve some of the reasons why people may choose or not choose to use those sites or, or go somewhere else. This is, I think, where we need to hear a little bit more creativity around how do we address this problem in the short term, because we know that the longer term, the more root cause solution is for all of those folks to have a home. And if we can't do that, what can we do in the meantime to both ensure they're safe and sort of sort of meet people where they are and, and as you point out, not take away the only sort of possessions or dignity they might have uh, for what reason exactly? There's fires all at encampments throughout the year. Why was it just before Christmas that we had to do this blitz to clean up the encampments? Like that's the part that I think really doesn't sit well with folks when they when they try to take that step back and just think about like, what are, what are we actually achieving here by doing this? Of course, another confounding variable. And I agree with you that like, you know, as a personal measure, I think encampment clearing as an idea 
isn't necessarily a bad thing. Even if you allow the encampment to stay. Yeah. The idea that you go through and, you know, human feces is not something that's safe to live in. Performing cleanup is not necessarily a bad thing. The inhumanity with which we perform cleanup is where you get into some pretty dicey yeah. areas. Yeah. And the other really confounding variable is, of course, we know that a disproportionate quantity of the people who are houseless are indigenous. The people who live in encampments tend to be, in the majority, indigenous people. But indigeneity is not one thing. Uh, when the province was announcing their encampment clearing funding this week, they were joined by Grand Chief of the Confederacy of Treaty 6 First Nations, Cody Thomas. There was definitely indigenous representation and consultation in the provincial and police response to this. Now, does consulting one indigenous person mean you speak for all indigenous people? No, absolutely not. Does it excuse what may be antithetical to reconciliation? No, it may not. But it is not just one thing where Chief Dale McPhee, you know, doesn't agree with the idea of reconciliation. Therefore, he's dismantling indigenous rights. That's not quite what's happening here. It's it's more complex than that, which is what makes it such a difficult problem to solve. We now have this new provincial strategy that will lead to aggressive encampment cleanup. And there exists the possibility that this helps, right? So in the immediate future, in the next three weeks, we've got this triage process where uh, the police roll into encampments with increased vigor and increased frequency. That is something that they've announced they're going to do. Mm -hmm. And they're presenting the citizens of the encampment with Four choices. You can leave of your own volition. You can be arrested for outstanding warrants. You can uh, jump on a bus and go to a shelter. Or you can join us at this new triage facility, which it's not clear whether it's being run by the police or the minister staff. We've heard reporting that both or neither. But you can go to this triage facility and get government ID and get processed and get connected with housing. So in the immediate future, this aggressive intake while certainly some people will bear the brunt of it in not a pleasant way, they may not want to interact with police in this way and they may not want to interact with government officials, there is a possibility that more people get connected with housing and supports and shelters in the immediate future. This doesn't solve the problem. This doesn't create wraparound supports. But it is a quick, it is a dedicated, and it is a big action. This isn't a baby step. This is a big swing. And it has the potential to make big change. I worry where we're going to be in three months. Because if you're a citizen of Edmonton, living downtown, who frequently uses the LRT system, or, you know, bikes along one of the trails along the public transit paths, you're going to see your city become a lot more clean. You're going to see your city have a lot less visible poverty, a lot less visible homelessness, and a lot less visible drug use. And for the average citizen of Edmonton, that might be a big check mark. That might be mission accomplished. We're, of course, sweeping the issue under the rug. But if we have a broad base of support for sweeping it under the rug, the provincial funding might be to buy more rugs rather than <laughs> to actually, you know, avoid throwing dirt on the floor. Do you think we'll also see less gangs? human trafficking, drug dealing, violence toward Albertans. These are the things that Minister Mike Ellis talked about as why we cannot allow uh, encampments to continue. He said, quote, we will not sit idly by and allow our streets to be overrun by gangs, end quote, as if every encampment is is run by a gang. I just 
is a shockingly horrific statement, I thought, from the minister. It's sort of a rhetorical question. The other thing about the encampments and this uh, this new action that you've talked about is, isn't this really just a reaction to the fact that when they cleared those eight sites, almost all of them popped right back up again? It's like the previous approach to clearing encampments is a bit like whack-a-mole, right? You, create, you, you clear a camp, but it's back up right away again. Like those things don't disappear and stay gone once they're cleaned up. This way, when you clean up that encampment, you're physically, you know, forcing people to make a decision about where they're going to go. Is it just an attempt to prevent them from coming back rather than to really actually help these folks? Well, for a provincial government that has talked about things like forced treatment, uh, has talked about things like zero tolerance for uh, crime and drug use in public, uh, this does sound to me like it is an attempt at criminalizing, you know, without creating debtors' prisons, creating debtors prisons i think this will clean up the streets i think the human cost for the cleanliness uh will be born and i think there will absolutely be someone who finds some standing and does some level of constitutional challenge to this but it's not going to be the coalition for justice or human rights i do worry about the cause down the line and the human cost to get there and i go back to other decisions the ucp has made because Something like Dynalife. The UCP privatized lab work. They gave all this contract to Dynalife, discovered, hey, privatizing healthcare doesn't work great. Uh, we got fleeced. And now Alberta Precision Labs has reintegrated. When governments like the UCP make bad decisions that the science and preponderance of evidence clearly shows is a bad decision, they'll eventually get to the right decision through making error and error along the way. The problem is with homeless and houselessness, the errors along the way are human lives, right? I'm not so comfortable saying, ah, let them make their mistakes. Who's going to get hurt? Well, people are going to get hurt. And the people who are going to get hurt are the people who have intergenerational trauma related to policing, related to being removed from their land that they have every right to be on. That's, that's the dangerous part with all of this. There's this presentation that you have to be on one side of it. Encampments are here forever. Let them have their tents or, you know, drug use is bad. Clear them all. And the real response is we know the solutions to these problems. We've known these solutions to these problems for 40 years. And we know who has to implement their solutions. The problem is they're just led by Daniel Smith right now. Well, yes, that is the problem. Uh, I think you're saying that you think this will clean up the streets temporarily. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I'm actually not even so sure that that's the case, like maybe, maybe, but there's, as of January 6th, more than 3,050 people on the homeless list that Homer Trust maintains. That does not account for all of the people who are at risk of falling into homelessness. And none of these actions that we're talking about so far will do anything to stem the tide of people entering the state of homelessness because income support is not there. There's not enough housing. When we do build housing, there's not enough supportive services. You know, all of the root causes that that we we know we need to do something about, we know the province primarily needs to do something about, none of that changes. I wonder if we just see a very temporary slowdown in the number of visible encampments. But the opioid crisis continues cost of living remains a concern. All of the other factors at play here, nothing else is changing. 
I'm not so confident that we're actually going to see much different. So if we're looking at what's next, I'm not going to put you on the spot and say what happens next, because I think both you and I are good. We don't know. This is something that we didn't expect to get to this specific point, and I'm not quite sure where we go from here. We know there's two things that are going to happen right away, and we don't know that they're going to do anything, but we're going to get a list of actions from city administration that council will probably receive for information. And I suppose we're going to have to strike another task force. So we're going to have some people either applying or being tapped on the shoulder to be part of yet another task force related to all of the same kind of stuff. Like I'm, I'm kind of losing track about all these different task force, provincial and city and otherwise. One thing that I'll say as an interesting next step that didn't quite go forward is during the emergency debate, a counselor, Aaron Paquette, was musing about making a motion to say, okay, let's accept the premise that we're not the order of government responsible for this. Maybe we should draft a report on what would it take, how many dollars would it take for the city to just solve housing and homelessness to say, you know what? We're going to take care of healthcare. We're going to do all the things that we don't have the legal authority to do. And we're just going to do it. And we're going to raise taxes to accomplish it. Not unlike what's happening in Toronto right now with Olivia Chow sort of just saying, you know what? We're going to raise taxes massively on homeowners in Toronto to pay for the things that the government isn't currently paying for. He was positing that idea. It didn't quite go forward. But that is an interesting next step of you know, maybe we accept the premise that the order of government that's responsible for this simply won't act, and maybe the city just should. At the end of the day, there is only one taxpayer. The other thing that I think is a really interesting next step, and I think will be something to watch over the next year or two years, is the fate of Andre Corwald, our city manager. During the meeting, he made some comments that really gave me pause some of them were during questioning about outside the Bissell Center. Why weren't there warming buses? Well, we don't have budget for that. Okay, so it's a budgetary thing. If we gave you more money, you would decide to use it differently? Well, maybe, uh, but, you know, this is a different responsibility. Only if Dale lets me do it that way. Only if Dale lets me do it that way. And, you know, he made comments about, you know, sometimes the city does do things outside of its jurisdictions. And sometimes it says, oh, no, that's not our jurisdiction. Yeah. And there doesn't seem to be a clear policy or rhyme or reason why. And from a city administrator who has in the past during budget said, nah, I didn't follow your direction because I didn't feel Edmontonians were into it. And from an administrator who is quite close with the UCP, we hear Andre Corbalt in city meetings and in defense in court saying that, you know, the province is coming to the table. The province is doing everything we're asked. We are getting everything we need from the province. That perspective doesn't quite jive with council's at least stated experience. So as a counselor, I don't know, I might be tiring of a city manager that's not quite following my direction. And I think the breaking point is going to come this spring because Andre Corbalt has not been delivering on OP12 in the way that counselors like Tim Cartmel want. If Andre doesn't deliver on cost savings, counselors across the board are going to be the progressives one saying, well, you're not delivering on our goals and implementing our policy. And the more conservative ones are going to be saying, and we're not seeing any cost savings either. And there might come a point where the votes come due and they say, let's try someone else. This all could change uh, with performance, but 
especially after this week and the long in private segment, which I have to assume some of that came to bear. That's something that I think will be a long term effect from this. I think that's definitely something to watch what happens with the city manager. Two other ones potentially to watch. I wonder about the future of Homeward Trust in all of this. I think the CEO, Susan McGee, and her team are really widely respected and have done a lot of really important work in the sector for a long time. But I could see, you know, some sort of task force or some sort of collaboration between the city and the province looking for some sort of a scapegoat. And it feels a little bit like red tape to have another agency in there. And we know they love to get rid of red tape. So I do wonder about the future of Homeward Trust uh, when this all shakes out. And lastly, I really don't think he's at risk here, but as we're recording this on January 18th, there was an Edmonton Police Commission meeting. And despite the police commission warning speakers in advance not to complain about the encampment clearing because there's a different process for that, they of course did. And several people in the crowd shouted, you know, shouted, not my chief, not mine either. And, you know, Dale McPhee said, well, if somebody has to take the blame, I guess it's going to be me, but we need to do the work and we're going to continue to do the work. You know, the way that you would expect him to respond, given how untouchable he's been. Uh, Most over... powerful person at Edmonton. Yeah. So I really don't think anything will change there, but it is something to keep an eye on. On the police commission, a notable piece of news since we recorded last is former city councillor Ben Henderson is now a police commissioner. He's one of council's appointees. Uh, I opined on Twitter that this is going to be good news for police accountability, because if you remember Ben Henderson's tenure on council, he was one of those chief advocates saying, you know what police should have? Bright yellow clown cars, right? We want demilitarized uniforms. We want police to be community members, not untouchable enforcers uh, that we may have today. So we'll keep an eye on that. Of course, the police commission is a slow moving generally rubber stampy body. One other change, I think, also since the last time we recorded to the police commission is that Councillor Sarah Hamilton is no longer one of the two council representatives. She's been replaced by Councillor Joanne Wright. And of course, some other things that we just missed over this long period is, you remember 102 Ave pedestrianization, how we fought the good fight on the podcast uh, for this? And the takeaway was, well, at least we're getting a report coming back to city council about the downtown pedestrian strategy. Well, Paths for People has been really excited to present at council for this quite a few times. Uh, they were excited <laughs> on December 5th. They were excited on January 16th. And they'll, I guess, be excited on February 6th because they've talked to council none of those times. Every other time they've been punted for some other important issue. I think this is where the new schedule for committees is just kind of flawed, right? There is not another urban planning committee meeting until February 6th. It's really more spread out than it used to be. And when things have to get delayed from one meeting to the next, we see this kind of uh, huge, huge delay. Complete out of left field news. A Metro Line station opened one year ahead of schedule. What? What kind of alternate universe are we in? The uh, Blatchford Gates permanent Nate station uh, is, as we're recording this, basically open. Uh, you know, they're doing some final testing. Uh, the but the doors are going to be opening by next week. Trains already have the Blatchford Gate masthead as they're heading up there. And this will mean the closure of the temporary Nate station. But along with it will mean Metroline cars can now be five LRT cars long rather than just the three that were required for the temporary Nate station. Incredible. Who would have thought that we would have trains opening ahead of time in this city? Uh, Nate students may complain that there's a slightly longer walk from the train station to their campus. 
yeah, sucks for you guys. But the long-term plan, of course, is Nate's campus is going to expand further around this station. So eventually you'll be right in the middle of Nate campus after you graduate and it doesn't matter to you. So congrats, Nate students. Well, we're not in the cold snap any longer, but it's still good to keep warm. It's minus 17 as we're recording this. So gather one, gather all around the rapid fire segment. Alberta NDP leader and former Premier Rachel Notley has announced her intention to step down as NDP leader following a leadership contest. The exact rules for the leadership contest will be discussed in Red Deer on January 27th, after which the first declared contestant is expected to be future last placer Raj Sherman. A Sherwood Park business owner has commissioned a 12-ton piece of art to honor the endurance of Albertans during the COVID-19 pandemic. The piece shows a family and a horse pushing forward against a strong wind. The sculpture has caught the eye of Alberta Premier Daniel Smith, who noted with admiration, quote, The artist really gets the message I shared during COVID. You can't vaccinate against the wind. And kudos to you, Troy, for not taking the much easier joke at play with that statue. Just go look at the picture. <laughs> <clears throat> The Edmonton Oilers are on a franchise best tear as they secured their 11th straight win in a row after beating the Leafs on Tuesday evening. In reaction, the team has announced that they have dismissed head coach Chris Knobloch. While some have decried the move as too early, Oilers general manager Ken Holland assured fans that the move is a proactive one. Without a coaching change and upsetting what's working, they risk being competitive in the playoffs, something that Ken Holland assured fans hasn't and won't happen during his time as GM. Oh, come on, go Oilers! <laughs> of course, Speaking Municipally is a publication of Taproot Edmonton. And this week, we've got a little self-serving ad. Mac, over the break, you launched the Taproot Calendar, which is very exciting for me personally. Yeah, we launched in beta the Taproot Edmonton Calendar. Our goal here is to help keep people informed about what's happening in and around the entire Edmonton region. We, have, of course, have already done this through The Pulse and through our weekly roundups. But now we've turned it up to the next level. We've turned it up a notch. We've got a dedicated calendar website listing currently uh, hundreds of events all around the region, and, and it's growing quite rapidly every uh, every day. It's our latest effort to inform and connect our community, and it builds on the attention that we already pay to what's going on around the city. So we'd love for you to check it out at edmonton.taproot.events. We've got lots of improvements and things planned for you know the weeks ahead, but we're really excited so far about you know, what we've already got here in terms of a place to go find out what's happening in, an, in in Edmonton. Some of the hits for this weekend, there's Deep Freeze, of course, on 118th Ave. Edmonton's International Ice Carving Competition, that's over in Ice District Plaza. And Made in Italy is playing at the Citadel. There's a lot of fun stuff in this calendar. Uh, so you can check it out. Once again, that's edmonton.taproot.events. And that's all for this week. It was long, but we had a break. So, you know, back to the grindstone. And we will see you once again at the Grindstone next week. Until then, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we are Speaking, Speaking Municipally. Municipally.